On this episode, Will Hurd. Having that level of attention to the, the latest crazy tweet would be valuable in trying to solve some of these, would be to solve some of these challenges. So um, I'm disappointed maybe is probably the better way, uh, uh, probably the better adjective to say it. I got asked that all the time um, because it took away from the conversation on things that um, I think the country needed to be need to be grappling with. I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow: The Battle for 2024. Heard as a Republican and a former congressman from South Texas, he's also a former clandestine officer in the CIA, meaning he was one of our spies. And at one point, he ran all of our operations in Afghanistan. I was excited to have Heard on the Shadow because he's sort of unique among prominent Republicans. Outspoken, but neither pro-Trump nor never Trump. At least I think that makes him unique. And that's why I spent a bit of time on him in my book. And we got into all of this on the latest episode, plus his expertise on cybersecurity and why, when it comes to threats from American adversaries like China and Russia, fear itself is not the only thing we have to fear. And now, we'll hurt. And I'm joined on Interim Shadow by Will Hurd, a former congressman. He's the author of a new book, American Reboot. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, I want to get into a few of the items that you discuss in American Reboot. Uh, I'm also excited to have you on because it's it's like another notch on my belt of people I write about in Interim Shadow that I've now had on the podcast, which has been important to me to try and get into some of the things that I couldn't get into in the book. But let me ask you first, as a former CIA agent in the clandestine service, um, and you ran our clandestine operations in Afghanistan at one point, you've been stationed in some really dangerous places. So you have a good handle on U.S. national security policy. What should U.S. policy regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine be now. What is President Biden getting right and what is President Biden getting wrong? No, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and it starts with, right, like, look, everything should be based on some value, right? And, and our value, whether it's with Russia, whether it's with China, whether it's with our friends, it comes down to after being connected to the national security space for 21 years, the philosophy is your friends should love you and your enemies should fear you, right? This is, it's actually a section, uh, that's, a, that's a title of one of the sections in my book. And so what does that mean? <clears throat> so, so Zelensky, who's not a Nazi, by the way, right? We, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta say well, Let's get that out of the way right now. <laughs> Despite what Vladimir Putin says, not He's a Nazi. Not a Nazi. He's Jewish. Okay. So I, I don't think, um, you know, I, I think just that, that alone, right? Uh, um, separates them. Zelensky, is asking, he's begging for his friends to do more, right? So that's step one. So your friend is not really in love with you right now um, because you're not doing enough. And then two, your enemy, and, and our enemy is Vladimir Putin, full stop. He is not a friend, he is not an ally. Every president since George W. Bush has tried to reset relations with, with, with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a thug. Vladimir Putin wants to stay in power until he dies. Vladimir Putin wants to reestablish the territorial integrity of the USSR. And he does not care how he's gonna do it. Some people wanna say he's crazy. 
I don't know if that's the right adjective to use because he knows exactly what he's doing and, and the consequences for his actions. So the fact that he is willing to continue to escalate activities in Ukraine because he's not afraid of what the U.S. and the Western allies can do. Now, so, so what should we be doing? What should the U.S. be doing? The longer this conflict goes on, the worse it is for everybody. It's also especially bad for Eastern Europe. These countries have to deal with a population that is under the threat of war, the impact of sanctions on those communities, and a growing humanitarian crisis. And so, so the longer this goes, you're going to start seeing fissures within the, within, the, um, within the Western alliance. Why should Americans care about this? Americans should, should care because the world is interconnected. The cost of gas is impacted. Look, part of it is impacted by bad policies um, for a couple of years, but part of that is, is impacted um, by, by, by Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the cost of food is impacted because the stuff that's being produced um, from that part of the world, there's an impact on, on technology. So the, the, look, when George Washington said we shouldn't, have entang- we shouldn't entangle ourselves with alliances other places, it was, good, it was good, solid advice at that time. The world is interconnected in a way that George Washington never thought. And when we retreat from showing leadership in an international order that has benefited America, right? Our economy has grown because we wrote the, the international rules and enforced it with our soft power and our hard power. I don't mean to go on, uh, uh, David, but, but so, so what should we do? Give those damn MiGs. It's not hard, right? Give them as much weapons as the, as the Ukrainians can, can need. It, it was funny in, in one of these interviews, I think it was with Brett Baer, Zelensky's like, I don't need helmets or Kevlar vests. He's like, I need heavy weapons. And he gave them those things and let them do the fighting and continue to repel, uh, repel the Russians. So, so I, I think, the, and so what is, I actually think one of the things Joe Biden got right was the slip up when he said Vladimir Putin needs to leave right now. I also recognize when you're the president of the free world, the things you say matter. That caused consternation amongst our allies. Um, that, that line was used by Vladimir Putin to continue to push information operations. But the problem in all of this is Vladimir Putin. And we need to be making sure that we're helping civil society within Russia um, in order to expose um, the, the thug and the, the warmonger and the, the criminal um, that, that Vladimir Putin is. Do you think Vladimir Putin would have invaded Ukraine if, if Joe Biden hadn't insisted on a withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, and if that withdrawal particularly had not unfolded the way it did? I, I would say the best I could say to that is it's probably less likely that he would have done it, right? Um, and and here's, here's why I say that. So, so let's go to Afghanistan. I, I'm one of the people that said we shouldn't have pulled out. We should have had a small footprint, 3,500 people there. Uh, when you look at the year before the pullout, 11 people were killed, um, and nine of that was in training accidents. Look, any, any death is, is a bad thing. Um, the amount of money we were spending in Afghanistan was, was, a, was a fraction of what we're spending in Europe, South Korea, and Japan. And it would have prevented a 3,500 uh, number 
uh, contingent would have prevented the preconditions from being created that led to that led to 9-11. Right. And so that's a long term thing. Oh, and by the way, who are the only people that are protesting right now? The Taliban, all the women and girls that we were allowed to go to school. Right. They're the only ones that are tough enough to try to to try to do something with, with the Taliban. So so the 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 the, the immediate the 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 things uh, went south in Afghanistan, as soon as the Taliban recognized that the Biden administration was going to continue the failed policy of the Trump administration, the Trump administration negotiating directly with the Taliban without the Afghan government being involved was the beginning to the end. And, and when the Taliban recognized that that was going to be that same policy was going to be continued by the Biden administration. That is when the Taliban put the pedal to the metal and the Afghans realized the, the, the America doesn't have our back. So, you know, let's get, let's not, let's not lose our lives uh, fighting some people that, that, and when we don't have, when we don't have someone having our back. So it was because of, of that decision, the Taliban, you know, went forward. And I think the disaster, of what of of that and and how uh, Biden and his administration completely mishandled that, left Americans in in Afghanistan, left our allies there. That Vladimir Putin definitely calculated they ain't gonna do a damn thing to me when I go, when I go further into Ukraine. Oh, because by the way, Joe Biden was part of the group that didn't do a damn thing. When the when the Russians went into Ukraine the first time, or the, in in two thousand eight, and, and excuse me, two thousand eight was 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 Georgia. Two thousand fourteen, when they went into Crimea and Donbass, right? So I think all of those factors played into. Oh, and by the way, there was part. There's a wing of the Republican Party that's like saying, "Hey, get rid of all the entanglements," right? So so Putin thought this was this was a perfect opportunity, um, and let me let me go in. Will Hurd is a Republican former congressman from Texas. He lives in the San Antonio area. He is the author of American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting big things done. Uh, I want to switch gears a little here. I mean, you and I could go on about American foreign policy probably for like a day and a half because I'm so fascinated by it. You, you, you are so steeped in it. Uh, you were a member of Congress for what, six years, correct? Correct. So it's like that the worst job you're ever going to have. <laughs> I know your voters are great and you love people and that's probably the fun part. But I mean, you've got to like commute twice a week and like where you live, it's not like Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader who lives yeah. in the Maryland suburbs. Um, you've got a district that's like as big as six countries put together that you had to travel if you were going to do it right. You had to raise money. You had to look over your shoulder at Democrats challenging you. And then you had to be in Washington where nobody really wants to do anything these days except go on TV half the time and and yap about how proud they are of doing nothing. So how horrible of a job was this? Well, when he put it like that. So so here's here's what I would say, David, like. I got 21 pieces of legislation signed into law. That's more than most members do in two decades. Right. Um, the part the part why, like, despite all those things you say and, and, and all those things you said is true. Um, the part that got me waking up in the morning and kept, you know, banging my head against the wall was when you're able to help people battle the bureaucracy that they that need battle. This is a part of Congress that most people don't see. It's not in movies. 
Um, reporters don't talk about it. And, and I actually get into some of those, some of those, those stories in, in the book. You know, one is this young lady who um, she had MS, a, 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 a neuromuscular degenerative disease. And she was on Medicare and she was supposed to get reimbursed for a wheelchair. Well, Medicare reimburses for like nine of 10 wheelchairs. She needed that 10th wheelchair. And it was like, why the heck do you not reimburse people for the, something that they need, right? And so being able to solve some of those problems. So because we solved it for one problem, we then figured out how to solve it for hundreds of thousands of people, right? Um, there was this dude, he was a tick rider, right? A tick rider is literally somebody who on a horse on the border looking for cows that are coming back and forth across the border that potentially have a fever tick. It's a type of tick. And if you have it, right, you got to You got to So, so long winded tick rider. It's called a tick rider. Um, and you they, ride on a horse looking for cows that have ticks. Bingo. That have that have crossed the border with Mexico. That is literally this. This unless and let's just say it's not. See, if you don't listen to it in Trump's shadow, you don't learn about tick riders. So, so it's not a it's, so, so my point is this. This is a guy who got injured on the job and had to get, get medevac to a military base for serious um, work. Department of Labor refused this to be a workman comps claim, started garnering his wages. Out, it's outrageous. Literally the last problem I saw my last day in Congress, right? Like, and so, 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 so my point is, my point is, um, yes, like, uh, to be able to try to talk about the things that people should care about. Uh, what, what was always fascinating to me, because my district looks 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It took 10 and a half hours to drive across it at 80 miles an hour, which was the speed limit in most of the district. A third of the district didn't have cell phone service. And it flipped back and forth every cycle um, until I held it for a decade, until I held it three times in a row. And it was, a, it's basically the size of Georgia, the state of Georgia. And, People would all like national media would always come down. And, and I also held the record for the most town halls any member of Congress did. Right. So so when national media always saw my district as a bellwether of the rest of the country. And when I would come to a town hall, I would do my thing and I'd leave 10 minutes for the reporter to ask the crowd questions. And basically the reporters were always like, well, y'all didn't ask this question or this thing, like whatever the latest thing on Twitter or, or cable news was. They're like, and finally, finally, in part of my language, I've cursed twice today. I apologize. Some lady in the back of the of the room yells, because we don't give a shit. Right. And and so um, so 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 to be able to try to inject in these conversations to talk about those issues that that most Americans care about. Um, that was that was a great opportunity. But I but I left because these jobs were not designed to be in forever. You don't need to look. I think part of the problem is professional politicians that stay up there all the time, um, you know, get out, uh, get back in, get a dozen experience. Right? Like I, you know, I would be smarter if I went back in the CIA today because of the experiences that I've had afterwards. So so that's a very long winded answer to your question um, about the things that actually were were fun about the job. Um, so. I thought maybe you just retired because you were sick of people like me running to you every time Trump tweeted. And you were, you know, because you were one of the few sort of resident House Republicans 
who would criticize Trump on occasion, although, of course, never enough for our liking. But um, what was that experience like in that? Look, I know you're a public look, you're, you're a politician, you're a public figure, so you're, you're supposed to talk about things that other people say. But did that tire after a while? Because it seemed like you I mean, I, I don't feel bad for you, but it seemed like you could never satisfy anybody. So if you criticize Trump, I remember and I write about this in In Trump Shadow, there was this interview you did with Bill Maher and his show. Uh, it was a one on one interview. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Trump was saying what Trump had. I, I think this was after the Putin press conference, the famous Helsinki, the, you know, uh, the debacle in Helsinki when, you yep. know, he sided with Putin publicly over the American intelligence community. And he kept wanting you to go, you know, so therefore Trump should be ejected from office because and you just wouldn't go there. In other words, you, you great. You criticized him, but you're not doing it enough. And of course, on the other side, it's like, who the hell is he? Why is he criticizing Trump? I, I'm just wondering if that after a while grew tiring. So it was a reality, right? Like, so for, for me, here's what I appreciate it, right, is that everybody always wanted to know what my opinion was. And, and so it wasn't just this issue. It was actually every issue. So because I was in a a competitive seat and I literally had a challenger, I I think the only time, usually when I won my, you know, you you get, you get inaugurated in January, um, literally two months later, my, I would always have an opponent, on, on the D. I always had Republican, I had primary opponents, but, but the one that I always, um, you know, it was be difficult. So the amount of money that was spent against me was in the general election. So I always had a, I already had an opposition. And so anytime any Republican said anything crazy, I had to answer to it. Right. And, and I had always say that again. Did it piss you off or did you like being that important? Well, no, look, it, to, to me, I'm just like, I don't know Joe Schmuckatelli from from, you know, middle of Idaho. Right. Like, I don't know why he said that thing. You know, we, we all don't we all don't sit in a meeting, you know, and say, do we approve of this or not approve of that? So did it did it piss me off? Um, look, it, it was it like, you know, my thing is this was it was part of the job description. Right. So don't complain about stuff. That um, now, did I think it, it took away from a conversations around issues that I think we should have been talking about? Absolutely. Right. Um, we, we, we it was like, why are we surprised when if Donald Trump says something crazy? Right. Like that. Like that's that's like if he didn't say something crazy, that is probably more more newsworthy. Right. Um, and so so that it pissed me off. It was just something that, you know, I had I had to be be aware of. And because it, it, the, the part that was difficult was we should be talking about the threat of China. We should be talking about what is technology's uh, proper role in society. Like these are big issues that are going to decide um, whether America stays the number one economy in the world or not. And, and that's where I wish a lot of the conversations were on, because having some having some having that level of attention to the, the latest crazy tweet would be valuable. And trying to solve some of these would be what to solve some of these challenges. So um, I'm disappointed, maybe is probably the better way, uh, uh, probably the better adjective to say it. I got asked that all the time um, because it took away from the conversation on things that um, I think the country needed to be need to be grappling with. 
Will, I, um, or Congressman, I, I wanted to ask you. Please call me Will. Call me Will, David. I, I can do that now. It's the it's the reporter in me. I'm stuck on titles. Uh, <laughs> um, let me. I, I don't do this often, but um, you're an interesting figure in the Republican Party in this regard. When I was reporting and writing in Trump Shadow, uh, the battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP. Your name came up, and one of the reasons I featured you in the book is when I was talking about the desire among some Republicans to move away from a Trump-centric party, at least in certain ways, the interesting thing I would hear from people you would think of as part of the Never Trump movement is a very uh, self-aware acknowledgement that no Republican was going to listen to them because they had sort of separated themselves from the party. Mm -hmm. but that there were some Republicans who they thought would be good for the future of the party, Republicans that might, if they were in charge, draw them back in as voters, and that maybe they could do what the Never Trump movement couldn't do because they stayed in the party and fought for the party, and they didn't constantly harangue it publicly. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like they they were still a part of the family and didn't separate and constantly go on TV and say how awful their family had become. And you were kind of one of those Republicans who is thought of as somebody who, all right, he's been open and honest when he's had criticisms with the leadership, but he has never said that the party needed some sort of cleansing, let's say, that there's nothing inherently wrong with the party and its principles. And so I want to use that setup as a way to say, especially given the title of your book, American Reboot, where do you think the Republican Party is today vis-a-vis Trump's impact on the party? What what needs fixing and what just needs um, more support? Um, in terms of what we've seen happen with the party over the past four, five, six years to be successful in the future? Sure. Um, look, uh, great, great, great setup, great set, sets of questions. Um, Donald Trump's uh, power in the party is waning. Okay. It, it, it's, it's, um, now he still has some, he's still influential. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it's waning. And you can look at that, you know, I think Mo Brooks is probably the, probably the best example. Um, six months ago, everybody was like, it's a fait accompli. Mo Brooks is going to be the next senator. And most people were like, what? <laughs> right? Like anybody that knew them was like, what? Um, and, and so you're seeing that and everybody thought it was because of, uh, of Trump support. The fact that, you know, um, the Trump organization is going to be trying to support multiple candidates um, because they just want to say they got a victory um, is, is, is also a sign. So, so I, I just think that 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 support is that 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 is waning, but his his supporters are are the most um, uh, what's what's the word active um, fervent right right a- a- activists in the party. So so all, all those things are, are constantly true. The Republican Party is doing what the Democratic Party. I think both parties have been doing this for the last thirty years. Instead of trying to grow new coalitions, they're trying to drive every little bit of their existing coalitions out. Right. Um, And, and, and I think that is why we've seen such swings every two years. That's why we've not seen one party 
kind of have influence over 10, 12, 16 years. And, and I think what the Republican Party needs to do is, is it look, American Reboot is about rebooting the party, about rebooting national politics, about rebooting our, our domestic policy, right? And it's get back to that original fresh operating system. And for me, it's, it's, it's when we're the party based on values, and we can clearly articulate what those values are. And to me, it's, it's an old formula that has been used before. Freedom leads to opportunity. Opportunity leads to growth. Growth leads to progress, right? Like that is the, that is the model. It is empower people. Don't empower the government when it comes to domestic uh, 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 policy. When you look at concentration of power in the hands of a few is always a bad thing. Far left wants to concentrate in the government. Far right wants to concentrate, concentrate that power in one individual. Both of those things are, are, are bad long term. And so when we are based on our values and when our audio matches our video, that's one of the title of my chapters. What we, what we do needs to actually reflect the things that we say. And, and that lack of ideological inconsistency of many of our actions is what drives and causes people to be upset. Now, Republicans are taking the House back in 2022. That's done. Likely to take the Senate back. Why is that? Because Democrats are incompetent. This is not the public saying, we love y'all. But unfortunately, in, at the beginning of 2023, after the election, Republicans are going to act like, hey, we got a mandate from the public and they love us. And then they're going to do crazy things. And the public's going to be like, y'all are jokers like the last one. And, and, and create a negative environment in 2024 for Republicans to win. So what do we do about it? Actually grow coalitions. So border security right now. The border is the, border is the worst it's ever been. Texas has five uh, congressional seats along the, the Texas-Mexico border. One is El Paso will always be a, a Democratic seat. And then the other, and, and there's only been one, that's been Republican. That's the that's my old seat currently held by my replacement. Three of those five seats are going to be Republicans after 2022, potentially the fourth. The fourth one's kind of an asterisk. It's going to be difficult, but it, but it, it could it could flip. That is crazy. And for the Democrats not to think, be like, hey, OK, guess what? We really got in the border wrong. Um, we really so, so the other thing that happens in South and West Texas is the Eagle Ford um, and the Permian Basin. One of the reasons America has been able to get energy independent or, or move towards that is because of the Eagle Ford and the Permian. And so 40 percent of the people in those communities are connected to the energy sector. So when you're anti-energy, when you're anti-law enforcement, you're going to lose. Right. So 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 we're going to see Latinos in South and West Texas voting in probably record numbers. In, in 20 in, in 22. So imagine if if people were voting for us because they liked our ideas, not because they thought the other the other side were a bunch of jokers. Right. Like that is way more powerful. And so so it's hard for people to appreciate and understand that slight nuance because we can really grow. So we why do we have income inequality? We have income inequality because of education inequality. And so in Texas, there's been a 20 year longitudinal study done about school choice and, 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 and charter schools. 
Now, look, I'm a product of public schools. I love public schools. I think they need to be their hands need to be untied and they need to be able to have the same level of flexibility as charter schools. But black and brown kids in Texas that were going to charter schools, the achievement gap that we had seen between black and brown kids and white kids was completely eliminated. Why are we not talking about this? Right? Like this should be this should be this should be ruled. This should be the first thing we should be talking about. Right. And, and so 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 what we should be doing is going back to those values that I talked about earlier. Talk about how our ideas are better. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a homophobe. Don't be a, a misogynist, you know, and, and people that do those things out. And I'm not, I'm not saying the entire party is that like I'm saying it's a small part. The majority is not. Um, and then we're going to be able to be and have a conservative vision for the country for a decade, for two decades. And that is what the country needs because of the competition that the geopolitical competition that we're in primarily with the Chinese government. And so so that's what I think. That's what I think needs to happen. Well, I wanted to I don't know if this is devil's advocate question. Sure. But there's so much talk inside the party and around the party about, you know, Trump and whether he's positive or negative or worse than negative or uh, better than positive. It depends on who you talk to. Uh, let me let me look at things this way. Look, and in case you know you've been living under a rock, Will Will is black, and I think when you were in the House of Representatives, you were maybe the only black Republican well, I was in the two, House. I, I was one of two for for two cycles, and the only one for one cycle. Okay, so you can. There's another reason we all had to run to him every time Trump tweeted because th- that was like, you know, what what does Will have to say among other things? Uh, but also. I joke a little because <laughs> it was true. <laughs> with your CIA background and, and everything else in your, your battleground district. Um, look, in 2020, and I and I and I write about this in, in Trump Shadow, you know, in 2020, with all of Trump's foibles, he he was at the top of the ticket where Republicans won 15 House seats, improved its vote share with black men. It's not that it's high, but it's it it went up improved the party's vote share with Hispanics, um, not beyond what George W. Bush had done 20 years ago, but getting toward in that direction. Republicans won. Now, this is something you know something about. Republicans, uh, Trump won Zapata County mm-hmm. in Texas. A, a Republican presidential nominee hadn't won that county in 100 years. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if in a weird way, Trump's conservative populism or whatever you want to call it actually demographically was good for the Republican Party, um, even if the votes that he cost Republicans in the suburbs and among college educated voters um, simply replaced one part of the coalition for another. But it's not as though the party emerged from the 2020 elections as messed up as things were in many ways, uh, more white. It emerged from 2020 less white and in a in a much better position to win the House in 2022 than it was at the start of the 2020 elections. I agree with all your your data points. All right. So let's start with that. However. Donald Trump lost the house he lost the senate and he lost the white house that is his that was him 
period, full stop. Okay. Now, should we be saying 3% increase within with black folks is a good thing? Like that's like, should we be patting ourselves on the back for that? Right. Um, I think those numbers should be above what George W. Bush was doing above what Rick Perry was doing in Texas. Right. So, so yes, while there was an increase, 3% going from going from 12 to 15, uh, I'm not going to say that's like, you know, hooray, we cracked the coat. Right. So, so, and then the reason, like, so, so the lesson of 22, excuse me, the lesson of 2020 is two, two lessons. Don't be a jerk and don't be a socialist. The fact that Joe Biden had zero coattails, had nothing to do with Donald Trump. It had everything to do with the Democratic Party. And the fact that that Republicans won in places and at times that nobody thought should turn into a thing that says Donald Trump was the problem. Because if all these other Republicans were winning, let's take um, uh, my man Fitzpatrick, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick in, in Pennsylvania. He outperformed Donald Trump by a significant mar margin. John Katko completely outperformed Donald Trump. So, so these, these notions, right? And then where did, let's take my old district. Um, one, the Latinos that were living in, in on the border had been seeing a lot of had been seeing more Republicans than they never had been, right? For the last six years. Oh, and by the way, the border was a mess. And and Democrats, and part of the reason was because Democrats were preventing that stuff from happening and they had been in control of, 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 of the house, right? And so so those are those are some of the 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 like all those things you said and you led up to, I, I agree with. But I think when you when you dig into the reasons behind it, it was it was people were coming to us because they were so frustrated with the other side. And the other side was doing things that were impacting their ability to put food on the table, a roof over the head or take care of the people that they love and make sure that they're healthy, happy and safe. And so so and, and, and look, and this is going to this is going to happen again if in 22, if in 2023. If, if a Republican House focuses on impeaching Joe Biden, focuses on, you know, dragging everybody in and, and only um, doing oversight, not passing legislation that impacts, you know, all these issues that we're dealing with, like inflation and, and a potential potential recession, right? a potential for a recession um, in, 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 the, in the 23. If we're not being doing anything to show to address that, all of those problems will get blamed on on Republicans. All right. And so so that's why even though 22 is going to be a good year for Republicans up and down the ballot, the way we win matters. And and, and I go back, I think I said this earlier, Texas just went through a primary. Three million people voted out of 30 million. That level of apathy means that there are not people talking to the super majority of the folks that could potentially vote, right? And that is where the opportunity should be. And that is, is where I think more people should focus. It's hard. 
Don't get me wrong, it's hard. And the trends are the trends. And so, so this is this is why I think this is this is this is complicated in that um I don't know if the the um that the some of the playbook from I think Donald Trump is a unique individual that um some of his his uh pros are incapable of 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 uh, replicating. I don't know if you intended to, but I think you just predicted a, a Biden resurgence after the 22 elections, because we know exactly how the Republican controlled Congress is going to approach the the um, the results of this election. They're going to see it as a mandate and Biden is going to be right in the crosshairs. It'll be the best thing that ever happened to him. Um, hey, I, I wanted to ask you, because I've never had a chance to ask you this. Um, how did you feel watching the Capitol get ransacked on January 6th, 2021? And you were one of the notable uh, opponents of the first effort to impeach President Trump. Uh, he was impeached with Democratic votes, acquitted in the Senate. If you had still been a member of Congress, would you have voted to impeach him in the second proceedings? Sure. Um, so. How did I feel? I was horrified of what was happening on January 6th. The first thing I thought about was if I was there and my staff was having to deal with this, right? Like imagine if your kids or your grandkids, it's day three of the new job and they're thinking they're getting ready to help their hometown congressman, you know, uh, improve the quality of life for their constituents. And you're hiding in a freaking closet or under your bed, excuse me, under the desk. Right. Like and like, how did that get to it? How, you know, why was this allowed? What were the tactics, techniques and procedures to try to prevent this? Who knew what? Look, anybody who didn't think this was going to be an issue. My 89 year old father. I was supposed to be in D.C. on January 6th. My 89 year old father, like uh, like a week before, he's like, hey, you know, you can be in town next week. I was like, no, I have to. I'm flying up to uh, I'm flying up to D.C. And this is my 89 year old father who doesn't use social media, doesn't know how to type doesn't have an email, only watches TV. He goes, what day are you flying? I said, the six. He goes, ain't that when that big protest is going to be? <laughs> so like the fact that my, my pops knew, right, that there was going to be a problem. So, 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 so I, I was horrified. Um, my standard for impeachment was formed under Barack Obama because in primaries, I was asked, was I going to impeach Barack Obama? And my answer was always, for what? And that's where I came to, like, I started thinking of impeachment. And guess what? There are 535 different opinions of what impeachment is, right? There's not a clear thing. And, 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 and so my definition that I had for Barack Obama was a violation of the law. First impeachment of Donald Trump, Adam Schiff said this was, was trying to set it up as if this was a issue of, um, uh, uh, um, what was what was the, the legal term? Bribery, maybe bribery. Trying to, yeah. bribery or extortion. Right. Yeah. It was bribery or extortion because because bribery requires uh, two sides of the party to both know that they were doing something wrong. Um, and so so all the preconditions for extortion didn't exist. And I said it very clear. I thought what he did was dumb. I think I said bungling. I think this was a bungling foreign policy, but it did not meet my standard of a violation of law. And oh, and by the way, in the articles of impeachment. Um, there was never any extortion or bribery was never even mentioned. 
And then when it came to a, a, a consent of Congress, I actually had all of the documents that were delivered to the, to the, to the Democrats on this. And I was pretty shocked how, how, um, how much was provided. And, and Speaker Pelosi did not use all her powers to make them come forward. So that's that. Second impeachment. It was, I think it was a violation of law. I think it, it was it was an incitement of violence, right, and a riot. Oh, and by the way, I think the bigger the bigger um, um, a violation was asking the Georgian, the the Georgia's Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to fake votes. That was that was a you're asking somebody to do something that, you know, is illegal. That's a violation of law. So that's that's my standard. And I think that was that was um, that was his his actions went over that um, in the second one. So you would have been number 11. I, yeah, if that's what it, if that's how many they were. Yeah, there were 10. Yeah. <laughs> um, OK, we're almost toward the end and I don't want your people to scream at me. So there's one question for you and one question for me as we get toward the end here. Uh, Will Hurd, author of American Reboot, you should check it out. In your book, you talk a lot about cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to do my best Jonah Goldberg here and say that, you know, there was this science fiction show and I, and I love Jonah. I listen to The Remnant all the time. Uh, there's this science fiction series on NBC some years back that I really liked, but not enough people liked. And in this in this series, basically all electricity and everything disappears and it knocks us back to the Stone Age. It was called Revolution. Somebody should remake it, do it right, and maybe make a movie out of it or like a 10-episode Netflix special or something. Um, how vulnerable is the United States if a power with means like Russia or China just decided to do the unthinkable and target our power grid, our our water facilities, all of the things that like make us a first world civilization. And I don't mean like forever. I'm not being silly here, but like, could they shut down power across the Eastern seaboard? And, you know, we'd have to scramble for 24 hours to get everything back online. Or is this the kind of thing that maybe is possible, but we're 10, but we're probably only going to see in a movie and, and they could hit us for an hour, but it's not so bad. Or, Maybe they could, but we could do it worse to them. So it's kind of like the Cold War when we were kids. Nobody was going to press the button because we were all dead. What is the situation here? Those things can't happen. Let's let's start with that, right? And 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 let me let me walk through a couple. The scariest cyber attack to me in the last couple of years was the um, this water treatment plant. Plant in South Florida, where a hacker late at night. So, the, like apparently, when you do water treatment, you use lye to treat the water. They increase the level of lye that would have been poisonous if people would have drank it. The dude on on the the the, the night watch guy saw the blinking red light and was like, "Hey, I ain't never seen that," and basically stopped it and prevented this the water from being poisoned. Had the hacker knew that there was a secondary system that would notify you of that and cut that off, people would have been poisoned by their own water by a cyber hack, right? Like that, 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 is, that has happened. The Chinese government 
turn the lights out in Mumbai. India and China have a have a have a, a ongoing border conflict on, on one of the on the Indian Chinese border near Tibet. And and it, and, it, and it escalated again, I think it was last summer, let's call it early fall. And basically the Chinese hacked into the, the Indian grid, turned the, some of the lights out in Mumbai. And the, and the Indian government was like, oh, well, oh, okay, all right, let's sort this out. So this notion that somebody wouldn't use it, it's been done. The Russians turned off the lights in, in Ukraine and in Estonia back in 2004. Um, and then if you look at what happened in Texas last winter, um, this was the, the grid almost went down because of, of natural reasons, because of the cold. It wasn't resilient. Um, some stuff had gotten taken offline. That problem could be mimicked from a, from a cyber attack, right? Now, could a country keep us down for a really long time? Probably not because of the, the reason our grid is, is, is redundant, um, but it would cause a lot of drama. The part I'm more worried about is what if we couldn't use our phones? There's, there's a great fiction book called 2034. It was written by Admiral Stravitas. He's a former, uh, I think he was former NATO commander, um, senior guy in the U.S. government. And, and he, had, he had a partner who wrote it. And, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a novel, but it's based on his, a number of his experience of how World War III starts. And it starts with the Chinese government basically jamming the communication of the White House. Could you operate with your family if your phone didn't work? I mean, I can get my kids to pay more attention to me, but I, I get your point. <laughs> right. So 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 that's that is one of those things. So, so and, and here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen when the Chinese invade Taiwan. And in order to slow down our response, they're going to do something to us that causes us to get caught up in, in worlds. Uh, could the Russians impact markets? to where they did some kind of where it was it was not necessarily like a like like a theft but they they do something that caused markets to move impacts our 401k's and our investments right and then how do you how do you walk that back right the 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 we would be spinning our gears probably for a month sorting something like that out which means we're distracted from 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 the real activity so so I, I think everybody's been using Ukraine as an example that we haven't seen these Russian attacks. Well, one, because the Russians are doing so bad in Ukraine that they've had to put a lot of their attention on, on trying to do the basics that they haven't been able to put time, energy and attention in the cyber war. And then also, I think they're afraid of, of, of the responses that they go back. But when it comes to the Chinese government, we have to assume that they are equal to or not better than us. And how would a counter um, to them happen? And would they would they be able to defend against us? And so there's questions like this gets even more complicated when quantum computing becomes a thing and some country achieves, achieves quantum supremacy. Quantum computing, look, it's a it's a different way of compute that's super powerful, which means if I if I had a functional quantum computing today, I could break the encryption uh, everywhere in the world. So imagine you do that. But you don't tell anybody you have it. You wait, you wait like nine months and go in and steal everything and then lock people down that way. Right. So so that that, that is a how are how is the public and the private sector working to achieve quantum supremacy? You and I are old enough to remember Y2K. 
right? Y2K was a non-event. Why? Because we spent a trillion dollars in four years preparing for it. That's the same level of attention and focus we need to be focusing on when it comes to quantum and, and quantum supremacy because of all these things. So yeah, I can go on all day long. Look, yeah, we, yeah. This, we is getting really de- this is getting really depressing, but we maybe we'll find out that secretly the U.S. government is doing its job. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you now one question for me. Are you running for president in 2024? Look, I've gotten asked that a lot. And, and, and here's, here's the real answer. If my opportunity, if there's an opportunity for me to serve my country again, I'll evaluate it. Um, and, and I've been lucky to serve my country, whether it was in you know, dangerous places when I was in the CIA or, or, or walking the halls of Congress, or even now working with technology companies that have a national security operation. Um, but but and if I have an opportunity, I'll, I'll evaluate it. But thinking about anything other than the next election, I think is a is a is a fool's errand um, because in a, the environment is is completely different. So um, if 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 I can serve, I'll think about it. Will Hurd is a Republican former congressman from Texas, lives in San Antonio. He's the author of American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting big things done. You should pick it up. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Will. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it was a pleasure, my friend. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.